The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning. Can I start by just telling you how cool it is for me to be here today? Um, I'll start with, with confession. And you're Christian people, so you have to let me get away with it. You can't even judge me for it afterwards when I tell you bad things about myself. But it's... Being here on a Sunday morning at the Springs with you to preach is kind of the end of a strange circle of my spiritual journey through the years over the last two decades of ministry. Uh, if, you, if you come from a Church of Christ background and heritage, then you're, you're in on the joke here, and, and if not, just stay with me. But in Churches of Christ, there's kind of like the more progressive side of things and the more conservative side of things. I grew up in the side that thought the conservatives were a little bit liberal, and we were on like that other fringe further out, okay? So my journey like through Churches of Christ and ministry to where I am today, I was just reflecting this morning is kind of funny. Here's the confession part. 20 years ago, you guys went instrumental and I preached for four weeks about you guys. I was mad, I was unhappy, I was that guy. And now I preach at a church that has an instrumental service once a month. You guys had some kind of like faith and fireworks thing with the Baptist, and I'm writing articles about the limits of godly fellowship, and now I'm the head of Ada's ministerial fellowship, and we host the Thanksgiving service, and the Methodists and the Presbyterians come in. It's been a weird, weird kind of thing for me through the years. So to end up here this morning is, is kind of funny. So thank you for being you. Thank you for allowing me to be here. Uh, thank you for Brett. First time I met Brett, I believe, was... Oops. There we go. I believe the first time I met Brett was in a Christology class at Oklahoma Christian, and he walks in, typical Brett, I'm pretty sure he was barefoot. He walks in, and of course, he's the music guy at the Springs, and I was like, of course you are, hippies. And so it just confirmed everything I thought about you, but now I'm here, and it's okay, right? So it's a blessing to be able to know people like Brett who help you along the way and help um, change a ministry from passionately fighting against unity to passionately fighting for it. Why do we have to talk about unity? Well, uh, because it's hard and we're not any good at it. That's the simple truth of it. In Christianity, it should be the simplest thing in the world. It, the last couple of centuries, it has not been. Um, I'm going to start out with a joke, but I don't tell it well, so I brought a video. Uh, Emo Phillips told this joke decades ago, and it was voted once the greatest religious joke of all time. Kid you not, if you think you've heard a better one, you're wrong. This is it, and it perfectly summarizes everything you need to know about Christianity and unity and the problem we face today. Once I was in San Francisco, walking along the Golden Gate Bridge, and I saw this guy on the bridge about to jump. I thought I'd try to stall him, detain him. He said, I used to believe in God. I said, that's good. Were you a Christian or a Jew? He said, a Christian. I said, me too, Protestant or Catholic. He said, Protestant. I said, me too, what franchise? <laughs> he says, Baptist. 
Baptist? I said, me too. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist or Northern Conservative Reform Baptist? He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist, Great Lakes Region or Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern Region. He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, me too. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879. Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. He says, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, die, heretic. And I pushed him over. Oh, about Christian unity and the struggle. And, and worse, I'm here today to tell you uh, that one of the things that will help us in that are creeds, uh, which seem to play a role in that. That's, that's not a Baptist joke. I've got another one later, and it's not a Presbyterian joke. It's just all of us. It's a struggle. What is unity? Unity is first and foremost the, perhaps, there we go, the result of a shared understanding of our calling. Unity is more than that. There's an emotional component. There's a character component. There's a behavioral component. There's a spiritual component. There's a miraculous component. But it is also, there's, a, there's an intellectual component. It's about agreeing on some things and sharing those values and ideas. And what we have then is the need to understand what it is that we're agreeing on. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 3 might serve as our text today, and this is Paul just describing the, the look of unity. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. I mean, it's got all of it in there. It's, it's got emotional content, it's got uh, character, it's got behavior, but they're in, right there in the middle is a walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Christianity is some kind of calling. It is a, a summons to a life that we're supposed to be living in the image of Jesus Christ. And in order to do that, we have to have a sense of what that means, okay? Some sense. And as soon as we start saying what that sense is, is when we start fracturing and dividing over what it means to be a Christian. So throughout history, early on, the creeds were these documents that were simply a summary statement of our shared understanding of our shared faith. Uh, in the early years, they were very short, and they were great. They're just a book report of here's what Christianity is about, okay? Good documents. Creed comes from Latin, credo or credimus, I believe or we believe, and it was literally just the beginning of the sentence. I believe this, I, we believe this, and that's what a creed was. Nothing scary or magical about it. It was a document that summarized, here's the things we all agree on. Do we agree on everything? No, but we agree on this stuff and we're gonna say so as often as possible. And that is the idea. I could stop the sermon there and have made my entire point, except I can't, I'm a preacher and I talk too much. But that's, that's the whole point. Unity requires a shared understanding of our calling and a creed is one of the tools we have for pinning down what is the stuff we believe in, what is it we think matter. Why is it then, in churches of Christ, we have traditionally shunned creeds? 
we're more likely to say things like, no creed but the Bible, right? That we're, we're those folks. And, and I want to say there's a reason for that, because creeds, like so many things, have kind of a checkered history. Let me give you just a little history of how the churches of Christ in particular became suspicious and skeptical of creeds. It starts in the 18th century, where if you're a Presbyterian in Ireland or Scottish, you are simply part of the Presbyterian church. That's it. Okay? That's who you are. They say, what franchise? You say, I'm Presbyterian. What kind of Presbyterian? Presbyterian. Everybody with me so far? This is the history of the Presbyterian church in Ireland and Scotland. However, 1712, they have a debate. Who gets to pick who our church's minister is? Some of the Presbyterians believed that there was a, the high council of the Presbyterian church should be allowed to assign to you your minister. And then the other group said, no, each individual church should select its own minister. And so they split. The seceder Presbyterians were those that said, we're leaving the high council and we're going to do our own thing. And the anti-seceder Presbyterians were those that says, no, our ministers will continue to be selected by a high church council. Both sides wrote down documents explaining what they believed and why, and off they went. And then it got weirder. In 1749, there was another debate about even if your local church is picking, who actually does the picking? That is, there's one Presbyterian church in town. Is the mayor in charge, the, known as the Burgess, the, the guy who runs the burg? Is the Burgess in charge? And will the mayor determine whether we are a seceder church or an anti-seceder church? Well, the churches that believe the Berger should be in charge of making that decision became Berger churches, and the ones that were against the mayor making that decision became anti-Berger churches. And so, stay with me now, you could be a seceder Berger Presbyterian, a seceder anti-Berger Presbyterian, an anti-seceder Berger Presbyterian, or my favorite, an anti-seceder anti-Berger Presbyterian. And each one of those had its own list of things. This, is, this isn't a joke. This is the true story. Had their own list of things that they wrote down and said, this is the stuff that's important to us. And then it got weirder. Because at the same time as this kind of church government debate, Presbyterians were having a theological debate that was splitting churches. There are two groups, one called the Old Light Presbyterians, who are devout Calvinists and believe that you're just fundamentally flawed and all that you can do to participate in salvation is to assent to right doctrine. You agree and believe the right things, namely the Westminster Confession of Faith, and you're saved. And that's the only thing that matters as far as you personally is believing the right doctrine. The New Lights said, hey, you know, a century or so ago, the Bible was translated into the English language. We can all read it for ourselves. And it has stuff in there about piety and behavior and how you're supposed to treat other people. Maybe we should take the New Light from the Scripture and start applying it to our lives. And then that behavior would be the true sign of our salvation. So all of those churches I previously listed now have to decide if they're an old light or a new light Presbyterian church, which means you can be an old light seceder burger Presbyterian, a new light seceder burger Presbyterian, an old light seceder anti-burger Presbyterian, a new light seceder anti-burger Presbyterian, an old light anti-seceder burger Presbyterian, new light anti-seceder burger Presbyterian, old light anti-seceder anti-burger Presbyterian, or everyone's favorite, the new light anti-seceder anti-burger Presbyterian. That's all right. That's the story. 
And at that time, there was a Presbyterian member, a minister actually, a well-known and thoughtful one named Thomas Campbell. He was an old light anti-burger seceder Presbyterian. And he thought that was silly. And he was right. And he and his son, Alexander Campbell, independently of each other, uh, left, in a sense, the Presbyterian churches and said, we want to do church without all these creeds and divisions and no, no creed but the Bible. And that's kind of the genesis of the churches of Christ. It's why we're skeptical of creeds, okay? There's a reason for it. Because in that instance, which has played itself out plenty of times in other ways, again, it's not really about the Presbyterians, is it? We've found so many things to fight and fuss about, and then we write it down, and the creed, instead of being, this is what joins us together, becomes this is what makes us different than those guys. And that's been the struggle. Our heritage has recognized that endless creeds and confessions create division rather than unity, and that's absolutely true. If everything is important, nothing is important. If everything is essential, nothing's essential. I mean, there's, there's no distinction. What we have to practice is what Albert Moeller uh, recently called triage. If you go into an ER, you walk in and you've got a stubbed toe. Or they're gonna say, sit over there, we'll get to you in a minute. You come in and you're gushing blood. They're gonna say, right this way. How do they make that determination? They're both patients, they're both sick. Both gonna pay the bill they decided one of those was more critical than the other, okay? And that sense of sorting, of discernment between what's urgent and what's essential at that moment is called triage. Moeller says, the same discipline that brings order to the hectic arena of the emergency room can also offer great assistance to Christians defending truth in the present age. That we have to, there's a million issues on the table. I've seen Facebook. There's a million things we can fight about all at once, right? We're gonna have to decide, all right, what's the stuff that matters? What's the stuff that needs to be on the list and what doesn't? What's gonna create unity? And what's the stuff that just shouldn't matter that much? Doesn't mean it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter that much. So in the early years of Churches of Christ, we had this great motto in essentials, unity, in opinion, liberty, and all things love. And that's, that's one we should stick with, okay? In essentials, unity, in opinions, liberty, in all things love. How do you have unity? First, you determine what absolutely is essential, what makes us who we are, and we all stand squarely together on that. Then we acknowledge there's a whole bunch of other stuff and we agree on some of it and disagree on other parts of it, and it's okay. Can't everybody be right all the time like I am? You're allowed to have your wrong opinions. It's okay. When my wife tells that joke, it's pointed the other direction, but you're, you're allowed to have opinions that you're wrong about, and it's okay. And we can, maybe we're both wrong, but what we're gonna agree on and treat each other with love regardless is the essentials of the Christian faith. So how do we determine what is the essential of the Christian faith? How do we determine that? Not everybody's list sounds the same, okay? Worse, I mean, if I'm being honest, isn't all of God's word important? That's what Ben 20 years ago would have said. It's in the Bible, it's God's word, full stop. Everything in God's word is important. But see the problem? If everything in God's word is important, none of it's very important. The Bible itself tells us that there are some things in the Bible more important than others. 
every word of God's word, every letter matters. I believe that. But some of it is of greater significance. And the reason I believe that is because the Bible itself says so. Can I read a couple of verses? Matthew 22, you've heard this one before. A lawyer comes to Jesus and says, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus responds with what? Hey, every part of the law is equally important. Every letter of the law of Moses is as important as every other. There's no distinction. Do absolutely all of it or none of it at the end. That's not what he says. He answers that question by saying, in fact, there is a part of the law, too, that are more important than the others. Doesn't mean the others are unimportant. These are first. The first, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Not only were some bits of their identity as Bible-believing, Torah-observant people, not only was some bits of that more important, he could number them. There were some things that were just fundamentally of greater significance than others. Does it again, a chapter later, just a chapter later in chapter 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Get that last line? All of it's important. He doesn't say pull pages out of your Bible and ignore it. That's a bad idea. But he does say, while not neglecting the others, you should have noticed some things were weightier, of greater significance, of greater importance. And then he names them. He names three, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, these things should have stood out to you a little bit. They matter more. And so the first thing I'd say when we're talking about Christian essentials, are there some things in the Bible more important than others? Absolutely, some things are more important to do than others. How do I know that? Because Jesus said so. And then we can go a step further. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, three through five, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, and he goes on a bit. What does he say? I'm now going to repeat to you the thing that I told you was first important. This was the most important thing I told you. What does that mean? It means there were some other things that Paul said that were of secondary importance, at least. You ever read Paul's epistles? He covers a lot of ground. Like every possible conceivable questions the Corinthians have. This is the end of 1 Corinthians where he's talked about a number of things what kind of hats women should wear, whether you can eat food offered to idols. Like there are a lot of subjects under consideration at the church at Corinth. But he gets all the way to the end and he says, I've told you all that, all well and good. Never forget that there was one thing that was more important than all of those other topics combined. This is the thing that's of first importance. If we get everything else wrong and get this right, we got the main thing. This is of first importance, the death the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, what we call the gospel. So in the same way, there are some things that are more important to do than others. There are some things that are more important to know than others. There are some things that our Christian identity is so fundamentally built upon that to lose it is to lose ourselves. 
and to not know who we are or who we're trying to become or who God is making us to become. Okay. So back in Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 3, read it again with all that backstory in mind. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then in the next three verses, he lists the things that he thinks should be the unifying concepts of the church, seven of them. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. He says, I can boil it all down. Why isn't Ephesians just three verses long? Why didn't he just say that, the end? Well, there's other stuff to talk about, and it's all important in its own way. But these things were the most important. These were the factors that when understood, make us who we are. And Paul says, this is what's going to make us one. This is, in essence, the, the origin story of the creeds, of people writing down, what are the key ideas? Paul says, well, here's seven of them. And it's a pretty good list. Now, the problem is, because I like problems, there is no perfect list of Christian essentials. I wish it was black and white. I wish I could just print it out and hand it to you this morning and say, this is it. These are the things. It doesn't exist. And that's all there is. And you're saying, now, hey, you just showed us one from Paul. That has to be good. You're right. It's a really good list. Okay? Used to, uh, when a church would say, you know, Ben, we're working on our website. Uh, we're going to put a, an about us page of things we believe in. What do we believe in? I'd use this list. These seven things. If, if it's not that, I don't know what it is. It's a good list. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. However, have you noticed there are some things missing on this list? Things that aren't included, that kind of matter. For example, the one thing Jesus said was the most important thing to do in the world, love your God and love your neighbor, not on the list. The thing that, G that Paul said was the most important thing he ever said, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, actually not on the list. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness, the weightier matters of the law, also not on the list. Why not? Because it's really hard to write a good list. I'm not criticizing Paul. It's a great list. But point is, every time we try to write it down, we say something that includes more than we intended or we leave something out that's really important. He includes baptism, doesn't mention communion. Communion's kind of important. Why isn't that on his list? And on and on we could go. It's really hard. Enter then the Christian creeds. And today I'll just emphasize one of them, the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed is this document that is very, very old, and it's another list of the things that make us who we are. Well, let me talk to you about it in just a minute. When I first read this document, I was prepared to argue with it because I didn't like the word creeds. And then when I read it, I thought, this is a fantastic list. This is better than my list. And listen to what it says. I believe, credo, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Off to a good start. Anybody have a controversy here yet? These are things we believe in. 
Is it a perfect, I'm not done yet, is it a perfect list? I mean, we could nitpick it a little bit. If you come to me and say, Ben, I'm not actually 100% sure about the virgin birth, I'm going to say, well, I'm me, I'm rude, so I'm going to say, well, you're wrong about that. But then I'm going to say, you still have a seat. I mean, they're, they're even that detail. If, if there was one thing on the list you denied, I don't know that I'm going to throw you out of the building by any stretch. But when you're thinking about what have Christians said they believe in for about 2,000 years, it's that stuff. That's the stuff that makes us who we are, and it continues. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Okay, there's Paul's bit, the first most important thing. He descended to hell. I'm going to come back to that. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Again, anything there we disagree with? Ah, that bit about descending to hell is a little strange, but it's actually kind of a language issue. If you read this in Greek, it's I descended, or he descended to Hades. If you read it in Latin, it's he descended to infernum. One is the shadowy place of the dead. One sounds like a lake of fire. It seems like it has a difference there. We could debate about that. We could nitpick a little bit and say, how do we want that worded? What's, what's the right way to understand that? Where did Jesus go when he died? But the fact is what we agree on. For 2,000 years, Christians have said, he went to the place where dead people go and he came back to us. And that's what we believe. That's what makes us who we are. And then it ends with just a rush of ideas at the very last. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's a good list. Can I nitpick some more? Sure. I was showing this uh, in part of my faith journey when I discovered the Apostles' Creed. I wanted to show it to everybody. Like, have you seen this? Did you know this is a thing? And I showed it to people at my you know, fairly conservative Church of Christ and put it up on the screen. And I said, this is a creed. Is there anything here you disagree with? And they said, well, that Catholic bit's kind of weird. Luke Timothy Johnson is a Roman Catholic scholar who wrote a book called The Creed. And in his book on this topic in the section where he covers that phrase, Roman Catholic scholar Luke Timothy Johnson says, hey guys, this isn't about us. That the word Catholic there is descriptive of the universal invisible church, the unity of believers that we're actually talking about and fighting for today. So again, I ask, anything up there you disagree with? What's the value of having a creed like this? The value is that for 2,000 years, Christians have been saying more or less the same thing. We have not always said it well. We have not always lived as we should. We have done dark and ugly things that history will never let us forget. But all the while, we have said, these are the things that matter. These are the things that we will stake our unity upon. These are the values that we have. There is no perfect list of Christian essentials, but I'm going to tell you, the ancient creeds are a great start. Because for 2,000 years, people just like you have sat in churches and read those words and said them out loud, or sang them as we did a moment ago, and says, that's the stuff we believe in. That's what makes us one. And once you realize that, you can look at the other stuff, the other things you're fighting about, and you say, it's not on the list. It can't matter as much as the things that are. It helps you do the triage. That's going to be absolutely essential for Christian unity. Unity is the result of a shared understanding of our calling. And we need to know what that calling is. Would you join us? We're going to stand and sing, and I think we're actually going to sing the words of that creed one more time.